As I was looking at this text, it is a, a longer text that is about 50 verses long, and so could take it a couple different ways, but the way I decided to take it was that we'll just kind of read through it together, and as we do, um, I'll punctuate the text with some comments and some explanations about what's going on in the text and also make applications along the way, uh, both towards um, prayer points for this evening as well as um, just perhaps a few other things. So if you want, uh, as you have that open, as we, as we read aloud, um, I'll just stop from time to time. You can keep your finger there, a word of explanation, and then we'll jump right back into it and uh, see what the Lord has for us in this very interesting passage. I've entitled this message, Joy, Discouragement, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the context, or I should say, uh, kind of the general principle um, that I was given was the gospel and the Gentiles. And we'll see how the gospel goes to the Gentiles throughout this, uh, this whole chapter. But joy, discouragement, and the Holy Spirit. I think we'll see how those three things interweave themselves and are mentioned multiple times throughout the text. The context in the previous chapter is that Paul and Barnabas, they've just gotten back from bringing the financial gift to Jerusalem. And now they're back in Antioch. And then right before this chapter, there's this very interesting portion of scripture, which almost seems um, inserted just kind of whimsically. But it's about Herod. And uh, you might recall the story where Herod uh, has this beautiful gown made um, that just glitters and kind of reflects light amazingly. And he gets up and gives this beautiful oratory. And um, the people, in order to kind of build him up, uh, start screaming out, it's the voice of God and not a human, um, trying to butter him up. And um, instead of saying, no, I'm not a god or anything like that, he actually takes it and runs with it. And because of that, um, he actually gets judged for that, and he ends up dying shortly thereafter. So a very interesting sort of context leading into this passage. But let's see what happens beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas is the first one. Simon, who was called Niger, is the second one, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. That's, that's the link there. This individual who's in the, the court of Herod uh, is also an elder at this church, and Saul. So we have these five elders. And interestingly enough, we're told that these five are prophets and teachers, but we're not really um, given much of a distinction between which one's a prophet, which one's a teacher, or if those overlap. So the those aren't necessarily to be distinguished in this passage. But you have these five individuals. One thing I just wanted to bring our attention to is Simeon, or Simon, who is called Niger. Um, this is just interesting, as well as one of the other names. Uh, if you read up on this a bit, and it's not just here, but several other times in Acts, we'll find that several of the church leaders seem to have been not just um, what we might call um, typical... Anglo-Saxon Romans, for, for lack of a better term, or Jewish individuals, but in fact, they seem to be from Africa, and they seem to be of African descent, which is very interesting, and just as a kind of an application point on that, although it's not the main part of the text, obviously, it seems that within the early church, as we're about to find out throughout this chapter, the early church was multi-ethnic, multicultural, vast, vastly different groups of people all coming together, worshiping the same king that is Jesus, some Jews, some Gentiles, some lords, some slaves, people of all nationalities came together. 
which is what the church is supposed to be, is a reflection of what it's going to be in heaven. And so we go on into verse 2. And it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so this group is together. It's probably more than just the five. Uh, It's probably more than just the five fasting and praying, perhaps a part or the majority of the congregation is there. They're fasting and praying about kind of the next step that God wants them to take. And as they're fasting and praying and seeking the Lord, the Lord tells them, I want Saul and Barnabas to go do a work. But interestingly enough, even though the call was clear, the place and exactly how that's going to work is not. So they didn't tell him where the land was or exactly what the work was going to be, but he said, I want Barnabas and Saul. But even more fascinating as I was studying this was verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're fasting and praying, seeking the Lord. The Lord tells them, I want Barnabas and Saul, though he doesn't tell them what they're going to do. But that doesn't stop them fasting and praying. They keep fasting and praying, and then after that, they lay their hands on them and send them out. Which is, which is rather unique, at least is the way I was thinking of it. Because often, um, the very few times that I have fasted, that's something I find definitely hard to do because I get hungry about every hour. Um, but the few times I have fasted or, or really been seeking the Lord in prayer and Bible study, etc., uh, if I get, you might say, a word from the Lord or feel that the Lord is moving in my heart in a certain way, Generally speaking, my temptation is just to say, okay, it served its purpose, we're done, thank you, Lord, let's move on, i got to do something else today. But here, they seem to understand the purpose of fasting and prayer much better than I do, oftentimes. That is, fasting and prayer is not so that we can receive something from the Lord that is an answer to the prayer that we really want answered, nor is it necessarily to wait on Him until He tells us to do something, but rather, fasting and prayer is so that we can align our will with God's. And that we can seek Him. Not necessarily so that He can tell us something to do so that we can go about our merry way, but rather because that is what we were made for. That is communion with the one and only God. And here, they continued that communion even after God had told them what to do. And then they finalize it by praying, laying their hands on them, and sending them off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Now this is is typical, we'll probably, uh, with even what we've already seen in the book of Acts, what we will see, this is typical. They go to the synagogue first. And they had John to assist them, that is John Mark. And of course we're going to find out later that he leaves them halfway through this journey, which causes some struggles later on. And when they had gone through the whole island, as as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, that is, son of salvation, is the the meaning of the words of his name. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. And so what we have here is they come to this region, and it seems clear uh, not necessarily, at least in the text, we're not told that, that they thought God wanted them to stay here necessarily from a calling from him, as much as it is this spiritual battle that's about to take place, what we might call a power encounter between the powers of Jesus Christ 
and this quote-unquote new religion that Paul and Silas are, or Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming, and that of this magician. And this kind of spiritual warfare causes them to stop and take stock and, and kind of enact or engage in their mission. But this magician, he's kind of a court wizard, you might say, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so whether it was because he felt somehow threatened by what Paul and Barnabas are doing and the power maybe that they're evidencing, and he thought that maybe the proconsul would would then decide in their favor and subsequently ignore him, or whether it's the fact that he has some real um, sort of demonic spirit in him which just cannot allow any truth. Either way, he fights against them and he says stuff against them, trying to get the proconsul's ear so that he won't listen to them. But Saul, and here's something very interesting, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now there are a couple things in this verse that are very interesting. First, it's, it's the first time we hear that Saul is also called Paul. Now it wouldn't have been uncommon at all for someone to have multiple names, a, a, a Roman name and a Jewish name, etc. But here's the first time that he's called Paul, and from here on in the book of Acts, that's what he'll be called. Because this seems to be the transition from him as what we might call a fledgling Christian to now one of the main leaders. Because what we found to this point, even in this passage, is that it's Barnabas and Saul. That is, Barnabas is named first because he's the, the preeminent one, the one in charge, and Saul is helping him. But what we're finding right now is with his name change from here on out, he's going to become the predominant one. And Barnabas or Silas or whoever accompanies him from now on are, are really um, more, more of the helpers. Paul is the leader from here on in. But it also says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And before we find out what he does with that filling, it's interesting to note that in the first nine verses, the Holy Spirit's already been named three times. It's very interesting that, it, that the Holy Spirit is so highlighted. And in fact, the whole chapter is going to end with the Holy Spirit as well. So from both the call at the beginning, the sending out, and now the actual message being proclaimed, Every point along the way, the Holy Spirit is the one guiding, directing, and empowering. Which can be a wonderful encouragement for us, and also an application point, that we must seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and power. And so he looks intently at this magician, and he says, You son of the devil, now remember, this is a Jewish guy he's talking to, so it's a fellow countryman with him. And he calls him a son of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making the uh, crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So Paul here is not necessarily um, being all that kind, we might say. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Remember Saul, a few years before this, he had been made blind, but in his case he had been made blind by seeing Jesus in his radiant splendor. And here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is making this man blind for a time in order to prove a point. And immediately, a mist that darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, before we get to verse 12, it might just be good to remind ourselves that it it had previously described the proconsul as an intelligent individual. Although we might question that just a little bit by the fact that he had some magician who was bogus in his court. But, 
we're going to find out that this individual is at least intelligent in this manner. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. He said, okay, obviously Paul's God has more power than whatever this guy was toting. And when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, notice that. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord, not the power of the Lord. That's weird, because we haven't heard Paul teach anything, except he's taught that this guy is bogus. But other than that, he hasn't really taught anything. So clearly we're missing something here. Paul has already given the message, or after this sign, he's giving the message. Somehow there's a message in here, and this proconsul believes, and he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Very interesting how that works. Just as a side note, um, it just says that he believed. And some people have, if you, if you were to read up on this text, or maybe I, I think I see a few study Bibles out here. If you have a study Bible, um, it, it might have a couple notes here that some people are uncertain whether this person actually believed, that is, believed the gospel became a Christian, because it doesn't say anything about him getting baptized or about him joining a church or about anything like that. It just says belief. But in keeping with the way Luke uses the word believed throughout his whole book of Acts, um, this is consistent with a true believer. So it seems like it's more than just, I'm impressed with this sign that's occurred because it says he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord and he believed, which is keeping with the normal way that's used. So then verse 13. Paul and his companions, notice who's named first here, Paul, not Barnabas or John Mark, but Paul, and his companions set sail, set sail pardon me, from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word or exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hands, he's about to say something. Now remember, Paul had been a a religious teacher. Now, whether or not the synagogue had heard that he had converted or not, we're not sure. Um, But And whether or not they knew who he was previously, that is, a religious teacher, uh, presumably in Jerusalem with great learning, or... Perhaps he's, what he's wearing shows him to be a type of rabbi. Whatever the case is, they recognize him for who he is, a teacher, namely. And so they ask him to speak about the readings they just had. And here's what he says. <clears throat> now, it, it's likely that the readings were probably from the Psalms and Isaiah, because that's what he's about to quote. So it's, it's a good guess, if nothing else. It says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I I just found that verse humorous. After 40 years, um, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. How many of them lasted in the wilderness? Uh, let me say that differently. How many of them actually came out the other side of the wilderness? Do you remember? Two. Joshua and Caleb. So I just, I kind of found that humorous. He put up with them in the wilderness. Um, that's one way to put it. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took place 
about 450 years. That is, 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and about 10 years um, as they're trying to take the land. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and so God gives them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, notice this phrase, who will do all my will. That, that should, let, let that uh, bring a question to our mind. Did David do all the will that God wanted him to? Was David true to the will of God? At times, yes. But he messed up majorly at other times. But that's important, as we're about to see. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming one, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. There's a couple different points here, but the the main one that I wanted to draw out was David was supposed to be the man after God's own heart who did the will of God perfectly. And for a time, if you were an Israelite, you may have even assumed that David was actually the Messiah because he really did a good job right off the bat. But then, over time he made several significant mistakes. One that almost destroyed the whole land of Israel. Do you remember that one time when he decided to go ahead and count and do a census of all the land of Israel, which God expressly told him not to? And if God had not been merciful in that instance, a great deal of Israel would have been wiped out. There's that as well as Bathsheba, as well as other things that David did. And so although he was a good king, he certainly didn't do the will of God perfectly. And yet, In his descendants, Jesus comes, the Savior, who does the will of God perfectly. And just like with all the individuals that Paul has mentioned here, they weren't the end in and of themselves. They were all pointing ahead. David was pointing ahead to the once, if I can can use a very famous phrase for King Arthur in this particular venue, the once and future king. That's Jesus. In the descent of David, David pointed toward that individual. Samuel, as a prophet, pointed towards a coming prophet. John pointed towards one that was going to come. They were all signposts along the way, pointing to the one who is the actual embodiment of God's will on earth. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, in verse 26, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared as those who had come up with him from from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, the Old Testament individuals whom he has already mentioned, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And before I, before I go on, and he's going he's gonna to quote another Old Testament passage here, it might just be helpful to note what he's done here. He's made the point that all those things that he's already mentioned, including some of the, the quotes he's about to mention, all of those things were pointing ahead to Jesus. And now he's trying to explain that to the people at the synagogue. Jesus fulfills all of these things. Not fulfills in the sense of a one-to-one corollary. That is, um, there are some prophecies in the Old Testament that say, uh, for instance, uh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and his name shall be called. That sort of a thing. We think of maybe Psalm uh, Isaiah 53. Some of those have a one-to-one corollary. But there are also ones that are more uh, what we might call typological or thematic. That is, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament history. He embodied the Old Testament in what he did, said, and acted. He was the fulfillment. That is, he brought to the desired completion or the completion for which it was originally intended. That's what Jesus did. And so Paul is pointing that out. And he's doing that by by pointing to a few of these prophecies. Interestingly enough, just this last week, I was in Swansea University, and um, we did some uh, missions outreaches and evangelistic outreaches on the campus there. And one young lady who came to several events, she's studying um, uh, some ancient literature as part of her course program. And she had many questions, some excellent ones, uh, on the New Testament as mythology. Her idea was, well, what's so different about the Bible as a whole, but especially the New Testament stories about Jesus, from old Greek myths or Roman myths? Because you have significant figures who are supposedly sons of God, or the gods or goddesses, who do miraculous things, and sometimes are born in a very unique way, etc. And she saw several corollaries. And we had some great talks about this for actually a couple hours. But one of the unique things that there's many, but one of the major unique things that separates the Bible from these other myths or legends um, or, or stories that have some sort of theological significance to different people groups is the fact that there are hundreds of prophecies that have been uniquely fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, even though those prophecies happened four, five, six, seven, eight hundred years prior to his being born. That's something that no other groups of myth or legends can claim, which is very unique about Christianity. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, verse 34, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. That is, corruption doesn't happen until the third day, and Jesus rose on the third day in typical Jewish thinking. And so Jesus does not see corruption of his body, but David did. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now that's very interesting, because we've just heard that this former magician called Bar-Jesus, that is, son of salvation. Okay? Now, obviously, this was uh, Paul and Barnabas. They're in a different location, but we just heard about this guy who's named son of salvation. But here he's talking about Jesus, who, in fact, is salvation. He can forgive sins, is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, 
even if one tells it to you. And so here Paul makes a very interesting claim. By the law of Moses, he says, there is no justification. That's kind of going up against some Jewish thinking. For anyone, or I should say everyone, breaks the law of Moses and therefore is condemned by the law of Moses. So if everyone's condemned, then everyone needs forgiveness, and Jesus is the one to offer forgiveness. That's kind of his argument through his statement. And they went out, and the people begged these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout uh, converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So in a sense, they're discipling now some of these people who have chosen to follow. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a quote from, I believe it's Isaiah 49. The concept was that the Jewish nation as a whole was supposed to have been the one to give the message of truth to the Gentiles. And we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, they ultimately fail miserably. They were supposed to be the solution, but they became part of the problem. And subsequently, Jesus becomes the true solution who does it perfectly. And subsequently, since the Jewish people are now directly rejecting the truth about Jesus, Paul, by means of the Holy Spirit's guidance, is turning to the Gentiles. The gospel was always to go to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, I should say I should say that slightly differently. The gospel was always intended to include the Gentiles, not go exclusively to them but always to include them. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that is a very interesting phrase. And um, sometimes it gives us, some people, a bit of pause. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What does that mean? The idea is that God assigned, no worries, that God assigned a certain group of individuals to a certain classification, in this case, to the classification of eternal life. Now, without getting into the whole debate on that issue, which would be difficult to do in two minutes, to say the least, this actually should be a great encouragement. When we're talking about missions, which is the context here, it's a beautiful and wonderful assurance to know that God will save some. If we didn't have that assurance that God would save some in the world, it could very possibly kill all of our impetus to mission. But God has said that when his word goes forth, he will bring about change in the hearts and lives of individuals. And in this case, the text is showing us that the individuals whom he had planned to change their hearts and lives, in fact, have come to faith in him at that point in time, and their, their names are written in the book of life. And that's a wonderful thing. So God's word went forth and it accomplished its purpose that he had appointed for that point in time.
Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Silas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. The dust, shaking off the dust of their feet, of course, is a sign of judgment for their unbelief. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So it begins with the Holy Spirit, meeting with the people, calling Paul and, Sil- uh, Paul and Barnabas, sending them out by means of the Holy Spirit, the word going forth from Paul and, and uh, Barnabas by the Holy Spirit, and it ends with them filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So a couple points in, in conclusion here as applications. <clears throat> in the final analysis, th- they were joyful after getting kicked out of the city. Now that does not strike me as being entirely something that I would want to be joyful about. But what's so interesting about that is God has just done a wonderful work. People have gotten saved. People are growing in grace. Apparently a church has begun. While at the same time, a whole group has stirred up the people to kick Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And this often happens. If you read through the book of Acts or just really the whole New Testament, where there's great encouragement, Satan always fights back. He always fights back. Someone, I was just speaking with someone uh, this week because I was a bit discouraged. Uh, this last week, as God was working in the hearts of lives of people that we were seeing, simultaneously I, we got news that my wife's visa had been rejected again, which was extremely frustrating. And, and someone encouraged me with this. They said, be encouraged that discouragement is coming. And I thought to myself, really? That's, that's the best you got for me right now? But he said, no, 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 think about it. He said, if Satan is fighting back, that means God is gaining ground. God's grace is going forward. And every time that happens, Satan will fight back. And it, was, it wasn't just with the frustrating um, issue with the visa, but many other people were experiencing difficulties. It was clear that Satan was fighting back. So in a sense... Every time we see that fighting back, that discouragement, some of those setbacks, we should be encouraged. That means Satan is feeling threatened, in a sense. And we should all the more cling to Christ. And we can be filled with joy that God is doing something, despite the discouragement as well, because that means God's kingdom is going forward. And they were, uh, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, it's all about the Holy Spirit. So, four points, um, to, prayer points tonight. The work always has to be done with the Holy Spirit. So that's something we can pray for consistently, uh, certainly tonight in specific. The work always has to be done with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is working, number two, there will be joy in the work. Sometimes that will include discouragement. But the discouragement is, can be, lead to joy as well. So there will be joy when the Holy Spirit is working. A third point. kind of dovetails off of that, is that encouragement can be gleaned from discouragement. Isn't it amazing that God so turns the tables in this world for his followers that even when deep discouragements are happening, we can see that as ultimately an encouragement because that means that Satan is fighting against God. That means God's winning. And when God wins, the devil starts playing dirty. That can be a huge encouragement. 
especially when we're struggling with things. This morning we were talking about suffering uh, at church. The message was on suffering. Oftentimes suffering comes about when Satan starts fighting back. But God is ultimately in control and will win the day. A fourth uh, very specific prayer point that has nothing to do with the text is uh, if you guys would be so kind. Uh, my wife and I, of course, um, are going to be applying. This is the last time we can apply for a visa. We're doing that this week. Uh, extremely frustrating circumstances, but we're praying that the Lord would break through this time and allow her to be able to join. Otherwise, that'll kind of mess up a bunch of stuff. But if you could just pray for that, that would be um, definitely helpful.